Father in heaven, this morning I know who I am, and I know how utterly incapable I am of standing here and representing your thoughts. And so I'm asking that you would forgive my sin, that you would cover me with the blood of Christ this morning, and that you'd give me the ability not just to think clearly, but to represent you faithfully to be true to Your Word, so that the only voice we will have heard when this service is over is the voice of Jesus. And I'm asking that we would hear Him, and we covenant with You that when we hear Jesus speak, we, we will follow. For we pray it in His wonderful name, amen. I don't know where Amazon.com was when lived on the Alaska Highway, I would have loved to have had Amazon.com. There was a famine of reading material on the Alaska Highway. I used to have to go out once a year. I would save up for camp meeting and drive 14 hours down to the conference office, 13 hours, whatever it was, and hit every bookstore along the way and every bookstore on the way back and get all the books that I needed for an entire year because all they sold in the town I was living in was Harlequin romances and coffee table books, and I'm not a romantic guy. Those books didn't appeal to me in the slightest. So I don't know where Amazon.com was in those days, but I can tell you now that I may be their biggest customer. I love Amazon.com, and it's an event in my house when a book comes from Amazon.com. Once upon a time, I had an assistant who, when a a book came from Amazon.com, she knew not to open that mail. It was sacred, and she knew it was so sacred, she would actually draw a ribbon and a bow on the box because it was a gift for me. It was like my birthday every day of the year. And when I got a new book, I would disappear into my office, and I would sit in there. I'd close the door for maybe 20, 30 minutes and just pour through my new title. And one day, I got this book that came, and I was so excited. I'd been waiting for it for a long time. It was back-ordered, and it was this book on ancient Babylonian history. And I don't mean Nebuchadnezzar's history, that's the Neo-Babylonian Empire. I mean way back when, all the way back to Nimrod and and to Hammurabi and, and to the very roots of the Babylonian Empire. And I was sitting at my desk, thumbing through this book, and I got down to about, oh, page 68, and I'm reading about how they built the original city or something like that, and suddenly this thought pops into my mind, what are you doing reading a history book, Sean, your entire life, you have have utterly hated history. It's true. In high school, I hated history. If I was ever, I see a few kindred spirits this morning. When I, if I were ever, young people, put your fingers in your ears for a moment, but if I were ever found off of school grounds during school hours, you could count on which course it was. It was during history. I couldn't. What is the point, I thought? Why would you study a bunch of people that are already dead? You cannot change their minds about anything, and that is the past, and I want the future. I hated history, and to make things even worse, we had Canadian history. It's the most boring history on the face of the planet. And some of you are smiling. I know I'm offending all the Canadians among the brethren this morning, but you know it's true. We, we have the most dull history on the face of the planet. We're too polite for anything exciting. And I remember opening the textbook, and I thought, there's got to be something in here interesting, and I saw it. There was this subtitle over a paragraph that read, the biggest civil disturbance in Canadian history. Oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be great. I'm going to get some action finally. History will become interesting. Do you know what the biggest civil disturbance in Canadian history was, according to that book? It was the 
Winnipeg General Strike of 1919. Now, by show of hands this morning, how many of you have ever heard of the Winnipeg General Strike of 1919? Not a one. Do you know why? It's the most boring civil disturbance in the history of the world. It's a bunch of angry Canadians. That's hard to picture all by itself. 6,000 of them in front of Winnipeg City Hall, and they're agitated. It's after World War I. There's no work, and they're upset. And at the height of their anger, they pushed over an electric streetcar. <laughs> that was it. Biggest civil disturbance of Canada. I hated history. I hated history, and at least you had interesting history. I looked longingly at my American cousins. Oh, if I only had those stories to read. You threw the tea in the harbor. You fought the Redcoats. The French, I like that history. They stormed the Bastille. They were chopping off people's heads. When you're 15, those are the stories you want. An electric streetcar? At the height of our anger, we pushed over an electric streetcar. I hated history. Now, here's what I want you to think about this morning, and I want you to follow me very, very carefully. I did not grow up a Seventh-day Adventist. Some would argue I never grew up at all, but I did not grow up a Seventh-day Adventist. So here I am, this high school kid who hates history. I don't see the point. It bores me. And along comes a group of people known as the Seventh-day Adventists, and you guys love history. I mean, it's all you talk about. You have charts with dates and number lines, and you have all these people with historical-sounding names, Uriah Smith, Hiram Edson. It is actually everything that a history hater hates. And along you come. So here's the question I want you to ponder with me this morning as we consider God's Word. What are the odds that a bunch of people like you are going to reach a kid like me with your message? What are the odds? Now, if you were to go to the so-called church growth and marketing experts, they're going to tell you, and I've been to them, they have some valuable things to contribute to our discussion once in a while, and I've been to them, I've listened to what they have to say, and I know what they'd say. They'd say, the odds are not very good. You can't reach a kid like that with a message like yours. The demographics prove it. If you start talking about Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and the Reformation and the Waldensians, he's going to leave before the first sermon is over. And sermon, forget about sermon, you can't preach a sermon to a kid like that. He's the MTV generation. You've got to entertain him. It's not going to work. If you want to reach that kid, you're going to have to change your message and you're going to have to change your methods. And you know something, I've seen the studies, and on the surface it looks pretty good. I mean, logically it makes sense. These people have their finger on the pulse of modern culture. They've got the data, they've got the charts, they've got the cultural studies, they've got their pulse on modern thinking, they've got the numbers to prove what they're saying. And because of that, unfortunately, too many of us are listening to what they say. The studies say the West is getting less and less religious. I saw it in Newsweek magazine. So maybe we should do something different. We should preach less and less Bible. Oh, come on, man. Yeah, America's not unreligious. Give me a break. You are not non-religious in America anyway. Let me interject a thought here. I have lived in secular places, and America is not one of them. Do you know that when New Hampshire ratified the American Constitution in 1789, not bad for a kid who hates history, right? When New Hampshire ratified the American Constitution in 1789, church attendance was 17%. 17. Do you know what it is today? 34. It's still double now what it was when this country was founded. Don't tell me that we are not a religious nation. This is a religious nation full of religious people. There's no question about it. But some people are listening to the studies. They say, oh, America's getting less and less religious. We need less and less Bible. We're listening to these people. And if the experts say, well, young people, they don't really like church, so maybe it's time to make church look like it isn't church. 
We listen to that. What they're missing is that over in Western Europe, they've already gone through that phase and all the kids are asking for old school liturgical worship from the 1800s because it's new and cool. Secular people, they tell me, don't really care about Bible prophecy. They don't even believe in God. So it's probably time to rethink this business of preaching out of Daniel and Revelation. And people sit and they listen to it because they appear to have the numbers, the statistics to back up what they say. It makes sense to us and it appeals to our logic. Or maybe, if we're honest, it actually appeals to our fear. Because God gives us this message, three angels' messages. Read them again. And he says, take this message and go and preach it to those people. And we look at the message and we like it, but then we look at the people we're supposed to preach it to, and it scares us. I'll be honest, it scares me. I'm terrified sometimes. We say, that's not going to make sense. So when the experts come along with all those numbers, we kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, well, if it's not possible, it's not possible. I mean, we would preach the three angels' messages to the public if it were possible, but apparently it's not, so we'll have to wait for the latter rain, and the Lord will finish the work in righteousness. There's only one problem with all those studies. Well, there's a number of problems, but there's one in particular. I've gathered them, and I keep them in my office, and I spread them out on my desk once in a while, and I look at them. And I ask a question, well, who can I preach our message to based on these studies? This group says I can't preach it to those people, and this study says I can't preach it to those folks, and this one says I can't preach it to those folks. And by the time I've whittled down who I can preach it to, there's nothing left. The audience that's left over looks nothing like the crowd in our scripture reading this morning. John was shown a crowd so big you couldn't count it. It looks nothing like the numberless multitude. The Bible says our work does not fizzle out. It does not peter out. It does not whimper and go into the darkness. It ends with a crowd so big you can't even count them. When I look at what's left over after I look at all those, it looks nothing like the promise to Abraham at all. Hey, Abraham, come wake up. What what is it, Lord? Wake up, come out of your tent, come down to the riverside. I want you to scoop up a handful of sand. How much do you have, Abraham? I have a handful. No, no, how many grains do you have? I don't know, I can't count them. That's right, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Now look up in the sky, how many stars? Come on, Abraham, how many stars do you? I don't know. You know, we can see about 5,000 with the naked eye. Now with the Hubble telescope, we know there's 100 billion in this galaxy alone. How many stars? How many? I don't know, I can't. That's how many descendants you're going to have. The studies look nothing like the promise of God. So here's the question this morning. I mean, either God made a mistake with the message He told us to preach in these last days and the audience He told us to go to, or maybe there's a problem with the study. I'm not against academia. I love academics. Uh, Give me a choice. I'll hole up in in an office somewhere with a stack of studies and books. I love it. But I just have one question for everybody. Just one question. How often in thousands of years of human academia have the academics been infallible? There is a reason that the 60 students, there's a reason that your textbook is in its 67th edition. Have to change it all the time. There's things we've assumed were true for years. Did you know? Did you know that scientifically we knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that men had more teeth than women? We knew that for hundreds of years. You know why we believe that? It's because one day as Aristotle's parading around in front of his class, as pagans are prone to do, they like to parade around. Jesus sat when he taught, and here I am parading around. (laughs) He's parading around, and I don't know what he's teaching, but somehow his mind makes a jump, 
And he says at one point, and men have more teeth than women. Everyone looks at each other. It's Aristotle. It's got to be true. Nobody counted for hundreds of years. Nobody thought, let's open up Mrs. Aristotle's mouth and do a check. So for hundreds of years, we said, look, the problem is, I love study. You ought to get all the education you can. We've been counseled to do that. Get all the education you can. It's good to study. The problem is, when you start to take yourself too seriously and put complete faith in your own results. The Bible does speak about this condition where you can be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, never find somewhere to stand and know things for sure. That's a danger. Human academics have always been prone to mistakes. So if it comes down to what God asks of my life and what God asks of my church and what God asks of all of us, if it comes down to choosing between that and what the experts are telling me, I'll tell you which one's the safer bet. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. If you have to make a choice, the choice is obvious. Not once in 2,000 years have Christians ever had to apologize for what's found in the pages of the Bible. Not once have we ever, we've had to apologize for how we behave. We've had to apologize for the things that we've done, but we have never, ever had to apologize for the promises of God. If you have to make a choice, the choice is obvious. Any study that contradicts the Word of God is just flat out wrong. And I know so because I'm the kid who hated history. And here I am, a quarter century later, ripping open my 2,000th book on history. Now I love it because I can see Jesus. It doesn't matter who wrote that textbook. It could be an atheist who wrote that textbook, but I can still see the hand of God nudging human history toward the second coming of Christ and the kingdom of God on earth. I can see it no matter. I love history now because now history shows me God at work and Jesus is coming. When we discount the work of the Holy Spirit, we make a grave mistake. Grave mistake. The experts are wrong. Do you, do you mind if I speak boldly this morning? You, you mean you weren't already? No, no, no. I, I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> Some of the reasons people give for not doing what they now call traditional evangelism drive me nuts. First of all, it drives me nuts when you call it traditional because you're trying to dismiss it. It's traditional, all right. It's been going on for 2,000 years and it's worked the whole way through. But don't try and dismiss it. Drives me. People give me, Sean, you can't just go out there and reach people who live like secular pagans with the message of the Bible. Sounds like it makes good sense, except for the one point in my life I was living like a secular heathen. I know that's not true because here I am, and I've seen thousands come with my own eyes since then. Pastor, studies prove you can only reach people over 55 with the traditional prophetic approach. That's starting to bother me more and more now that I'm getting close to that mark. <laughs> Sounds good, except for the fact that I was 22 when I joined this movement, and I have literally watched tens of thousands of young people come in ever since. I know that's not true. I know the promise of God is good. Pastor, the only people who come to a traditional evangelistic meeting is somebody who's never, ever been to college. We have to do something else for the academic mind. Nonsense! I might not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I was in college when I came to this movement. And I have watched tens of thousands come with their master's degrees and PhDs and join this movement in the last 25 years. I know the promise of God is good. And folks, it's time for us to stop talking ourselves out of doing it. It's time to believe that God knows what He's doing. He didn't make a mistake with this message. He didn't make a mistake with the audience he sent us to preach it to. He didn't make a mistake with the methods he gave us. 
People have often said, Sean, you know, especially they don't say it so often anymore because they've given up. But when I got started, they'd say, what's your niche going to be, Sean? What are you going to be? Going to be a youth pastor? Are you going to be, you know, are you going to be for white collar, blue collar? What niche are you going to preach to? And I've resisted it for 25 years because when I open my Bible, I only find one niche. Sinners. Do you know what's great about that niche? They're everywhere. You find them all over town. Folks, do you believe for one minute that God is in heaven this morning gathering the angels saying, Gabriel, come on, get a pen and paper. I made a big mistake. I did not see the postmodern secular generation coming, and I gave the church the wrong message for the last days. We better do a rewrite. Do you see it for a moment? Then why do we live like we believe that? One of our biggest problems is not that we've lost our desire to see people come to Jesus. I don't think that for a moment. I don't think we've lost the desire to see our pews fill up. Our hearts ache when we see those empty spots in our church pews. But we've somehow gotten this idea that the work is up to us. It's up to us. We think that Jesus gave us an assignment. Guys, I want you to go make disciples of every nation. Then he left for heaven, leaving us asking, but how? I don't know. You figure it out. I'll be back in 2,000 years. Not at all. We think it's up to us to figure out how to do this. And so we've been making some really, really incredible mistakes because we think it's up to us. I'm driving across the great state of Missouri. Notice I worked on that. I'm listening to the radio, and on the radio they mentioned the Church of God Chicken Grill. Well, that got my attention. I got, I got to know what's the Church of God Chicken Grill. So I turn up the radio a little bit. What is the Church of God Chicken Grill? Here's what it was. Here's this church, and they can't get men to come to church. That's true all over the place because we are stubborn. There's a reason we die younger than the ladies, because we never back down, and we're always stubborn, and we'll never admit when there's a problem. We don't ask for directions. There's all kinds of things we won't do. So they're wondering, how do we get men to come to church? And someone said, I've got an idea. Why don't we have a barbecue? We'll have a tailgate party in the church parking lot after church, and we'll get the best chef in town, barbecue chef, to come and barbecue chickens after church. My goodness, were there a lot of men at church next week. A lot of men. And the barbecue got bigger every week. More and more men. Did you realize there is a a tailgate party after church, they all came, and the barbecue got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and the church service got smaller and smaller and smaller because you can't bait and switch. It does not work. It doesn't work. There was a notable denomination somewhere in Northern Europe. I won't get any more specific than that. They were wrestling with the same thing. We can't get young men to come to church or read their Bibles. So they, they printed about 22, 23 years ago, they printed a special edition of the Bible for young men. And I'm not kidding. Bikini girls in the margin of every page flew off the shelf. They sold millions of them. Not one of them was ever read. And the services just got smaller till they started closing churches. It's not up to us how this works. We do incredibly stupid things when we try and take over. Incredibly stupid things. In the Netherlands, they said, we can't get anybody to come to church. And these are my people, the Dutch. I like Michigan. I'm in my home turf. I landed in Grand Rapids yesterday, and they practically speak Dutch in that city. 
That we can't get anybody to come to church. We'll let the drug dealers do their deals here in the sanctuary, in the pews. That'll get people in the building. Sure did. How many converts do you think they saw? Zero. None. It doesn't work. Let me ask you a question. New York Times in 2007 was observing how Christians do everything and anything to bring people to church, including video game parties. And they asked the question, it's the New York Times, no friend of Christianity. The article ended with this question, what price are these people willing to pay to appear relevant? Wow. That's a good question, isn't it? Maybe the better question is, what makes our message relevant to people? Somehow we've got the idea that it's up to us. We need to make it relevant. It's not God's plan. I want you to think about this carefully. Let me ask it a different way. Is it our job to make people think that this message is relevant? Or is it our job to find people who do think this message is relevant? Those are two different tasks. I want to show you a paragraph. Are you guys ready up there? I said I would call for it. I'm going to call for a paragraph from Desire of Ages, chapter 37, because this one paragraph is the best one, short, one paragraph short summary of how evangelism is supposed to work that I have ever seen in my life. And so I'm going to read you this paragraph, written a little more than 100 years ago now. And then we're going to unpack it from the Word of God. I'll show you this. Take a look at this. The apostles, I need my other glasses now. The apostles were members of the family of Jesus. It's not my main point this morning, but that's a big one. If you're not part of the family of Jesus, how can you ever share Jesus? you got to be a part of it. They'd accompanied him as he traveled on foot through Galilee. They had shared with him the toils and hardships that overtook them. They had listened to his discourses. They had walked and talked with the Son of God. And from his daily instruction, they'd learned how to work for the elevation of humanity. That felt so powerful. I went like that, and they changed the slide. Now, here it is. No, don't do it again. I was just showing how I do it. Now, underlying stuff is important. We're going to study it. Then I'll let you go for lunch. As Jesus ministered to the vast multitudes that gathered about him. Who ministered? Who's the minister? Jesus. His disciples were in attendance, eager to do his bidding and to lighten his labor. They assisted in arranging the people, bringing the afflicted ones to the Savior, and promoting the comfort of all. Now, watch carefully. They watched for interested hearers, explain the Scriptures to them, and in various ways work for their spiritual benefit. They taught what they had learned of Jesus and were every day obtaining a rich experience. It's the best short summary of the process of leading people to Jesus that I've ever seen. So let's unpack it. There are five points. Jesus is the minister. The disciples watch for interested hearers. They explain the scriptures to those people. Then they tell what they know of Jesus, and they retained a rich experience. There it is in a nutshell. So let's unpack it. First point, Jesus is the minister, not you. It's not our message, it's His message. There's this story in the book of Revelation, it's my favorite passage, although anything I happen to be reading in the Bible is my favorite passage that day. But Revelation 4 and 5 is a special favorite. I love it. You remember John standing in the throne room of heaven, he sees God on the throne, the scroll written front and back, sealed with seven seals, and a voice asks, who is worthy to open the scroll, to loose the seals thereof? And they couldn't find anybody. And John weeps. That scroll is important. It's significant because it's chapter 5 of Revelation. And if you look at chapter 6 of Revelation, you realize that when those seals are open, church history begins to unfold. I'm old school. 
The white horse rides the early apostolic church. The red horse, Christians suffering under Roman persecution. The black horse, Constantine's so-called conversion. The pale horse, the church slipping into the dark. It's the whole history of the church all the way down to the falling of the stars in 1833. And if nobody can open that scroll, church history cannot begin. And they can't find anybody. And then John sees a lamb looking as if it has been slain walking into the throne room. What kind of language is that? That's sanctuary language. That's where you find a slain lamb. This is a sanctuary scene. And I'm convinced there's room for some disagreement, I suppose. But I've become convinced over the last 20-some years that the scene you find in Revelation 4 and 5 is actually the installation of Jesus as heaven's high priest when he goes back to heaven. He takes the scroll, and now church history can unfold as he begins to open the seals. It can't begin until he's driving. Listen, when Jesus went back to heaven, he said to the disciples, you're going to go from here to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, but I want you to stay right here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. So they wait in Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls, and they're now able to preach to people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people right there on the spot. And in all that wonderful confusion, there wasn't confusion, in all that wondrous miracle, Peter stands up and he says something remarkable in Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. He says, Jesus has just been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, listen carefully, and He has just received the gift of the Spirit and has shed it forth on us. We always say that it's the disciples who received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and it's true. But it's not technically what happened. Jesus received the Spirit and then shed it forth on the church beneath. Now, listen to this psalm. It's prophetic. It's Psalm 133. Listen carefully. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's the day of Pentecost. It is like the precious oil upon the head. What's oil a symbol of? Holy Spirit. Running down the beard, the beard of Aaron. Who's Aaron? High priest. Running down the edge of his garments, it's like the dew of Hermon. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus receives the Spirit. It flows over him onto the church beneath, and all the action really is in heaven's sanctuary. The whole plan, listen carefully, the whole plan of the church is run from heaven's sanctuary. Jesus opens those seals. He does it all. We don't do any of it. Read the Bible carefully. It teaches that God gives people the gift of repentance, Romans chapter 2. God brings people to the cross of Christ. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father draws him. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings people under conviction, not us. It's all His work, and none of it is up to us. And you can search your Bible from cover to cover. You will never find God telling us to come up with another plan. It's not there. Point one was Jesus speaks to the multitudes. He's the minister. Point two, the disciples watch for people who exhibit interest, and I'll combine point three with it. They explain the Scriptures to those people. Now, you'll notice they weren't trying to make people interested. That's a biblical impossibility. Paul says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. If someone is genuinely secular, there's not too many of those that actually exist. People swear up and down they're secular, but when I sit down and talk to them, they say, oh, I'm an atheist. You more often than not find out they're angry at God. They don't disbelieve. They're just mad at Him. Hard to be mad at someone you're pretty sure doesn't exist. 
But if somebody was truly secular, there is nothing you can do to make them interested in spiritual things. Nothing. That's not what I, that's what Paul writes. There's nothing you can do to change that. You can't make people interested. You can't. Makes you wonder why we spend so much time and effort talking about how to reach people who aren't interested, when all that while there are people falling off the trees all around us who are interested. Read Gospel Workers, page 136. There's a remarkable dream there where we are told, do not pick green berries. Please don't touch them. Pick the ripe fruit. You can't make people interested. God handles that part. When the, what the disciples did was look for people who were interested, who are listening to the voice of Jesus and showing some interest. And when they found those people, they explained the Bible to them. And that makes sense because those people are hearing the voice of the Spirit in their hearts And then you open the Bible with those people, a book inspired by the Holy Spirit, and when they hear the words of the Bible, they recognize the voice. You and I are just there to help them connect the dots and invite them home. When I finally got this, my life got so much easier. I used to worry about, oh, I've got to give an altar call. What if I'm not convincing enough? What if I go on for 25 minutes? You know how it goes. Is there just one more? What if I'm not convinced? Then I got it. You don't have to be convincing at all because you can't. What you have to do is appeal to people who are feeling the conviction that the Holy Spirit of God brings, and that's different. We watch for interested hearers, and we explain the Scriptures to them. Read the book of Acts. There's no such thing as a cold interest anywhere in the book of Acts. I challenge you to find it. Day of Pentecost, who did Peter baptize? Devout men from every nation under heaven. Acts chapter 8, Philip, i got a Bible study for you, and you are late. He's riding in a chariot. He's halfway through the book of Isaiah, and he doesn't understand. Philip's the last one to the meeting. We're always the last one to the meeting. God gets there first. Acts chapter 9, Ananias, I got a Bible study for you. I love Bible studies. Lord, who? Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. I can't give a Bible study to Saul of Tarsus. He kills Christians. Don't worry about it. I already pushed him over. He's been blind for three days. He's waiting in the dark for his Bible study. (laughs) Acts chapter 10, the first Gentile convert. Who is it? Cornelius, a devout man who's already giving gifts to God's work. God stirs conviction. There's no way you can do it. You look for conviction. You don't create it. It's everywhere. People are ready to come home all over the place. I I was grocery shopping on a Friday afternoon. I'm not home very often on a Friday, but when I am, Gene will send me out to the grocery store to get stuff. But I'm not allowed to go all by myself because I'm going to second-guess everything she's ever bought. And I'm Dutch. I buy the cheapest thing on the shelf every time. I'm a Dutch Avenist. Now, that's cheap. And I'm walking through the store. I have to be on the phone taking instructions from my wife. And I'm walking up and down the aisle, get this toilet paper, get that peanut butter, and I put it in the cart. And as I'm walking around, the lady behind the deli counter thinks I'm talking to her because she she can't see the phone. So I hung up. I said, oh, that's so rude. I hate it when people do that to me. I said, "I, I was talking to my wife. And she says, no, it's okay. I forgive you. But now that I have your attention, I have whole roasted chickens on sale, $5 each. I said, well, that's, that's a really good deal. She said, how many do you want? I said, none. I said, she said, none. Why wouldn't you want any chickens? I said, well, I'm a vegetarian. She said, you're just making that up so you don't have to buy any. I said, no, no, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. I, I, don't eat, I don't eat chicken. She said, why would you be a vegetarian? It boggles her mind. Well, anybody? I said, well, I just found out it's better for me. Oh, she said, that's curious. So you weren't always a vegetarian. No, no, I became one later in life. Oh. She said, I used to be a vegetarian. I said, really? You used to be a vegetarian? She said, yeah. That's interesting. Then she said something remarkable. She said, you don't understand. 
I was really vegetarian. I don't know what really vegetarian is, but I was really vegetarian. I said, really, how vegetarian were you? She said, we were so vegetarian that every weekend my mother made a special K roast. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but at that moment a bell went off in my head. I thought, you know, there's only one group of people on earth that would eat special K roast. So I changed the language a little bit. I said, hey, yeah, I said, that's fascinating. I dropped the word vegetarian. I said, you grew up Adventist and I didn't. She said, yeah, oops, she said. I said, I knew it, I knew it. And I'm an Adventist minister and God sent me to the deli counter today because I bet you haven't been to church in years. (laughs) And she hung her head and started to cry. She said, I was praying about that this morning. They're falling off the trees all around us, and we're busy trying to reinvent it. Folks, crowds are bigger than they ever have been, let me tell you as an evangelist. They're more responsive than I've ever seen, and we're wasting all our time talking about what do we do for people who aren't interested. Focus on the ripe berries. Give the green ones a little time, they'll ripen. Disciples watch for interested hearers. They explain the Scriptures to them. Such a profound principle that even on the road to Emmaus, here's a couple of postmoderns, right? They used to know everything that they should believe in. They had everything nailed down and secure. Now the Messiah has been crucified. They don't know what to believe anymore, and they're kicking the dirt and walking. And Jesus appears, and He could have just flashed through in His glory. I'm here, I'm back. No, the Son of God, the resurrected Son of God, beginning at Moses and the prophets, He expounded unto them in the Scriptures all things concerning Himself. What does He do? He gives them a prophecy seminar, a Bible study. And if that's how Jesus does it, that settles it for me forever. I can't convict people, but I can find those that are under conviction and share what God's Word says with them. Connect the dots. Point four, the disciples told people what they personally knew of Jesus. That's really why you're there. You're the testimony. Because most people are hoping it's true. And they'll listen to the voice of the Spirit in their hearts. They will read the Word of God, and the next place they're going to look is you. (laughs) Does this work? Very few people hope it's not true. I was holding an evangelistic meeting one time. A guy came 20-some nights, and... He, he, at the end of it, said, I don't know if any of this is true. We don't even know if Jesus actually existed. I thought, you don't come 20-some nights and not believe this. So I opened a Bible. I said, let me ask you a question. Do you hope this is true or do you hope it's not? And he sank in his seat and he started to cry. He said, I'd be a fool to want that to not be true. I said, now we can get started. One of my favorite stories is Daniel chapter 6 because I'm a chronic insomniac. I've never slept through the night in my whole life. And there's Darius pacing the floor at night. I love the story. He can't sleep. And he probably hides that from the kingdom. He doesn't want them to know when he's worried. And a lot of your neighbors are hiding their concerns from you. They're putting up a brave front. But I promise you they have sleepless nights when they come under conviction. I promise. Darius has made a deal that ends in death that's irreversible. Daniel's going to die. It's kind of like what we did as human race. We made a deal with the devil that ends in death and we can't change it. 
Early in the morning, he runs down to the lion's den, or more accurately, really, the tomb, because it foreshadows the tomb of Jesus. They rolled a stone over the door and sealed it. And in the morning, he who should have been dead is alive. And he calls out, Daniel, are you okay? That's not what he asks. Read it carefully. Daniel, the God whom you serve continually, has he been able to save you? Why that question? Because if he can save you, Maybe He can do something for me. God sends you in to tell what you know of Jesus. Point number five. Because they followed God's plan, the disciples obtained a rich experience. So many of us are poking through a drudgery we think is religion. Drag ourselves around. There's such little joy sometimes among Christians. I know it. I walk the streets of every city I go to. I get up early in the morning. I walk the streets all over the world. There's such little joy in our world. I just look at people's faces. Truth be known, I get up in some churches some mornings and look across the saints and some of you look sour. (laughs) We think there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. In Joshua chapter 1, Moses is dead. Joshua assumes the mantle of of leadership. That's got to be tough, right? Following a stellar example. You're following a huge success like Moses. You almost always want to follow someone who didn't do all that well. (laughs) He's got to follow Moses. And Jesus comes to him. You've read the book of Joshua, and if you haven't, you should. Jesus comes To Joshua as the commander of the Lord's host, sword drawn, let's go, let's go into the promised land. Joshua gets the whole plan. Just Joshua and Caleb are left over at this point from the original generation. Joshua's got to go back and explain the whole plan to the children of Israel. They're going to have to take his word for what he's been told. Kind of like there's a whole generation in the remnant church that we used to have people who heard directly from God, but now they've passed on and we're going to have to take their word for what they saw. He's got to, it's time to go in. I've been told we should go into the promised land and conquer it. That's great, Joshua. We want to go in. We don't want to be like grandpa and grandma and die out here in the desert. We're ready. Let's go. We should probably build a bridge over the Jordan River. No bridge. What's the plan then? No bridge, Joshua. It's flood season. That river is six feet deep. We're going to go through the river and you're going to follow the ark. Follow the ark. It's six feet deep. We've been in slavery for 400 years. We don't have any tall soldiers. They're all going to drown in the river. Follow the ark. Why? Because the command center has always been the heavenly sanctuary and the throne of God. They had to follow the ark into the promised land. So they step into the river and the waters part. Wow, Joshua, I can't believe how that worked. That was great. What next? Let's start picking off all these rinky-dink little villages. No. No, I think we're going to go after Jericho. Jericho! It's big, and they're tough. We better get started. We need battering rams, and we need more swords and spears and bows, and it's time to open a foundry and start making... We don't need any weapons. What do you mean no weapons? Have you seen the people in Jericho, Joshua? We need weapons. No, no. We're going to follow the ark. We're going to walk around the city seven days in a row. They're going to pick us off off the city wall one by one. We're going to follow the ark. 
doesn't make sense, Joshua. I don't care if it makes sense. It's what we were told to do. Follow the ark. I don't care what the stats and the numbers say. Follow the ark. They march around that city. And an interesting thing happens when those walls fall down. You'll notice they never touched them. Because the commander of the Lord's host was there first. You and I are in charge of precisely none of this. Our call is to do what we've been told. We were only told to do one thing. Go make disciples of all nations. Only one thing. You notice when the walls of Jericho fell, there was a mighty shout, just like there's a mighty shout at the second coming of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4. There was a trumpet blast, just like there will be a trumpet blast at the second coming of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you'll notice it says in Joshua 6 and verse 19, and after the walls of Jericho fell, the gold, listen carefully, the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron were absorbed into God's treasury, just like in Daniel chapter 2 when the statue is crushed, the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron are blown away, and the the stone that represents the kingdom of Christ filled the whole earth. What did the Israelites learn that day? If you do what God asks, He takes over and does it for you. Follow the ark. We, we broke trust with God in the Garden of Eden. That's what we did. We chose not to believe Him anymore. And so God's given us a job to do that will rebuild that trust. Take this message and preach it to those people. That doesn't make sense, Lord. I know, but you're going to learn a thing or two along the way. When we lived in California and the kids were little, we had this house. It's going to sound grand, but it was a dump. But it had a circular staircase. That's the nice sounding part. I mean, I think we bought it because it had a circular staircase. And I'm in a house full of women and we could play, you know, Gone with the Wind on our big circular staircase. And and when Gene was out, I used to let the kids climb up the outside of the railing of that banister and sit. There was a little area about 18 by 20 inches at the top of the stairs on the outside of the railing. And they would sit up there and there's like this hard oak floor down below because I see all the women going, oh no, <laughs> believe me, your husband's doing this. <laughs> our job to bring a little endangerment to our children. And I would sit there and they'd dangle their legs laughing and I would yell one word. Yeah, you got it. Jump! And they would come off like lemmings so fast I could barely catch them. Bang, bang. And they'd run up the outside of that banister and sit up there dangling their legs again laughing. Jump! And they'd jump and I'd catch them and they'd run up and they'd jump again and they'd jump again and we'd keep doing that till we heard Gene's car pull into the driveway. And then we played Lego or something, you know. I don't know. <laughs> Gene's actually watching the streaming feed this morning. <laughs> and then the day came when they climbed up there. I stood beneath them and I said, jump. And they hesitated. I saw it. And that hurt. Why are they hesitating? You had your eyesight's not what it used to be. And <laughs> you had a back surgery. And <laughs> what if you miss? Do you understand what we did to our Heavenly Father in Eden? We quit jumping. 
So He gives us one job to do. I mean, when you get to heaven, you're going to live by faith when you get there. Understand that. You're not going to know everything when you get there. Lucifer wasn't allowed in the counsels of God. You won't be either. It runs by faith. So He's given us an exercise to teach us to start jumping again. Take this message and share it with those people. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.